thing about wildlife is that it the thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife is feeling of interconnectedness that it's humbling is that it's insightful intriguing you belong it's about all of us always evokes a sense of wonder doesn't matter why you're here that's the thing about wildlife Hey listeners, welcome back to season 5. Today I am in conversation with Priyadarshini Panchipakesan, a young English language school teacher who grew up inspired by the nature around her in Kodaikanal. Her fascination for the natural world, concern for the environmental issues she observed over time, and love for writing have led her to create and publish several storybooks for children. from short stories to novellas that explore ecological facts folklore adventure and magic her books include some exciting titles like the myth of the wild god and the guardians of the forest and she already has a couple more in the pipeline here's the episode now the thing about writing story books Hi Priyadarshini thanks so much for joining me on the podcast i'm really excited to have you and someone with your specific skill set as well on the podcast so welcome thank you so much ishika i have been following your page on instagram i have been regularly looking up the posts of thinking about wildlife and i really like the work that you do and that's why i reached out to you because i really felt that i could share my story on your platform as well I'm really really glad you did that because getting to know you ever since you reached out has just been so interesting and I'm really fascinated by how you came to be the writer that you currently are and uh, so I want to start right there tell us a little bit about your journey because you've written extensively about the natural world and conservation issues while you're also currently an English language teacher so tell us about how this interest in nature came to be alongside your interest in literature and teaching sure uh actually this is a very interesting question and one that i would really like to delve a little bit into so i was uh, born in kodaikanal which is a very picturesque it's a very small hill station in tamil nadu and i was born in 1995 and i spent all my school life and the important part of my childhood in kodaikanal so i was there till i was 17 years old and then i had to move out for college but the time that i spent there had a profound impact on me because all i knew when i was growing up was the natural world and how important it was to, for me to be in sync with the natural world that is that is how i grew up so for example it was such a common sight every morning for me to get up go look at the dewdrops on the grass or spot a wild boar or two you know walking outside or just grow up with the rain or the mist and this is how i really this this was how my childhood really turned out to be so when i saw certain changes happening in kodaikanal over the as i was growing up from my childhood to my teenage years and how things started slowly changing because of human activities i think that what really inspired my interest and that is when i realized okay this is my home this is my ecosystem this is all that i've known so i should really start thinking about why these changes are happening and uh, i really wanted to start writing about these changes so when i was in school i didn't really start writing any novel or any book or anything of that sort but in grade 12 i did write uh, an article to uh, the hindu 
wherein and it was published as well. So this was an article about a wild boar migration and how I started noticing wild boars moving away from the forest into the town. So even when I was in grade 12, I noticed how this was a very drastic change. And now when I look back at it uh, 10 years later, I feel like the change then was subtle compared to what's happening now. But even then, it was based on my observations, not on research or anything else. But as somebody who had lived and grown up in Cody, I felt that such changes were very, very important to me. And I didn't want anything happening to the ecosystem that I grew up in. And uh, the second part of your question, again, uh, the whole interest in English language and literature and how I connected my passion and love for the environment to English. So uh, again, as I was growing up, I grew up in an IB school. So IB schools are known for how uh, they the students think a little differently. We are creative thinkers. We are critical thinkers. And so I think my um, education at the Kodakinan International School also really helped me think outside the box. And it really helped me understand more about why my natural world was important to me. And then even in school, we had activities like going out and um, seeing what was happening to the Shola forests. Because as you know, the Shola forests are uh, native, the original species which are native to Kodi as opposed to the wattle or the pine, which came up much later after uh, colonialism, right? So all these things also we explored when as students. So I think uh, being an IB student really helped me, uh, help develop a love for English language literature. And when I like later took it up during my BA and MA, I realized that these two don't have to be two separate things. My love for Cody, my love for the environment can always be translated into something else that I'm passionate about, which is English language and literature and writing fiction and all that. Oh, I'm really glad you fully got into that because, yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. And it's so incredible to know that you were that tuned into your environment from when you were a student and I mean of course I've heard so much about the school you went to and it seems like a lot of the people who emerge from that school are very in sync with their ecosystems and their environment so it's wonderful that you were able to actually pay attention so keenly to those fine scale changes over time and for it to move you enough to actually write about it I think that's that's really so incredible and quite inspiring it's lovely to see that you allowed both your interests to kind of coexist over time um that's that's really awesome yes yeah um do you also know of others from your school who have kind of entered the field of wildlife or ecology all right so i think the greatest person to ever inspire me is of course uh miss zaiwatekar zaiwatekar was uh, she, she in Cody, we consider her more of a, a permanent resident there, even though she becomes, drops by in and out and she doesn't stay there anymore because she taught there for a very long time. And it's not just that. The first, one of the first books that I grew up with is uh, Zywitaker's Andaman's Boy. So from there, I think she has been a very, very inspirational person and she's very, very well known in the field of conservation and ecology and all that. So I think she's my greatest inspiration and what really inspires me is that she still continues to write and she still continues to write about issues with, which really matter to her. So she is definitely a very inspiring person for me and she also wrote the introduction or the forward to two of my books, one being The Postwoman and Other Stories and the other being The Myth of the Wild Girl. And uh, when I told her about uh, the work that I was doing with the Postwoman and Other Stories and the Myth of the Wild God, she felt immensely proud that somebody from 
Cody is uh, writing about these issues because we often find that, uh, you know, people come to hill stations, they enjoy their life there, they have a good time. But sometimes people don't really focus on the problems that are also there in hill stations, especially. So she said that she was incredibly, you know, amazed that somebody from the hills is writing about eco-fiction. So that's another thing, right, where writers who are not really familiar with the issue sometimes take end up writing um, environmental fiction or eco-fiction. But I think the people who really should write are the people who have gone through those experiences of being on a hill station. So, yeah. That's so true. I think the fact that you bring your personal lived experience into your stories, even though they are uh, essentially fiction, but rooted in lived experiences, I think clearly that comes across in your writing. And um, like you were saying, I was reading the introduction that uh, Zai has written for your book, The Myth of the Wild God. And clearly, I mean, that introduction itself really made me want to dig into the story because you could tell that she was really moved by uh, what you had written and how you had written it. Um, but I'm so glad you brought that book up because I wanted to ask you, uh, this is, of course, the book I'm most familiar with and I've read it cover to cover, enjoyed every bit of it. But you've also published other stories, right? The Post Woman and Other Stories, like you said. There's another yeah. one called Aung Sang, Sheroes and Heroes. Yeah. And most recently, you've uh, also finished working on the guardians of the forest so yeah. which of these was your first book and what led you to write that particular story okay the post woman and other stories uh, it was written during the pandemic and very interestingly when i started writing the book i did not make a conscious effort to make it environmental fiction or even have any elements of environmental fiction i just wanted some a fun read for uh, children which could also teach them some kind of values and by values I'm not talking about you know very morally post and post values on children but uh, values that values like kindness and empathy and a love for their environment which they naturally would feel so these were the values that I was thinking about as I was writing the stories and without even realizing it I noticed how everything was again based on my childhood experiences and my love and passion for nature and only after uh, I saw Zai's introduction to that book, did I realize that, okay, this can actually be considered a work of environmental fiction as well, because it has so much of passion for the environment, and there's so much of beauty in the way in which I admire the environment. So uh, that is about my first book, The Postwoman and Other Stories, where I really realized that the genre which I should work on as a writer is environment. Oh, that's really fantastic. And to have figured out exactly what your forte is from your first piece of writing is, is pretty cool. <laughs> and what about the other book, uh, Unsung Sheroes and Heroes? What's that book about? Uh, Unsung Sheroes and Heroes is not exactly environmental fiction. Uh, it is It is just something that I've been thinking about for a really long time, where I think as a society, we often only write about people who are very inspirational, people who are very admirable. But I also feel like uh, there are a lot of people who go very unrecognized for the work that they do. And there's nobody to write about them. There's nobody to talk about the beauty and the pain involved in their work. So, uh, and of course, the word Shiro is coined from Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou has come up with that word to talk about women who are also heroes. And she did not want to use the word heroes because it has he in it. So I, again, I wanted to uh, make this book all about, you know, people who iron our clothes, people who string together jasmine flowers, 
people, the tightrope walkers, people who collect shells sometimes, you know, on the beaches and they make cement out of those shells. So these small professions that go unrecognized and there is a lot of, of course, difficulty and challenges in their work, but there's also a lot of beauty in their work, which I wanted to write in the form of descriptive passages. So that is all about unsung heroes and heroes. And uh, see, this book might be very different from all my other books. But the one thing I realized in my journey as a writer is that I always look at things which are not really noticed by other people. And that is my focus. I really want to be more observant and write about things which are otherwise considered, you know, very ordinary, simple, maybe even mundane things. So, yeah. Can you maybe tell us one of the stories of any one of the sheroes you've written about? Because this sounds so fascinating. It would be lovely to have an example of what one of those descriptions okay. were like. Yeah. So uh, in the, I mean, I have the book with me. I can take it out if you want and just read a passage. From sure. The yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So just give me a second. Yeah. Yeah. Take your time. Right. So this is just for your reference. This is a picture of the book. It's a very oh, small nice. one. It's a pocket book. But yeah. uh, it's a very unconventional book because it just has descriptions. But I'll just read this out for you. Yeah. I'll read out this whole thing because it's very short. So the sure. first one is called The Jasmine Flower Seller. I was always amazed by the way the Jasmine Flower Seller moved her fingers to string together buds of pure white jasmine flowers. Her fingers moved so quickly that I could barely discern the individual movements. I wondered if her count was the beat of her very own heart. Whenever I tried to weave a loop and lock a single bud, I would end up creating a perfect knot around my own finger while the bud remained motionless and indifferent on the table. But the jasmine flower seller knew how to move the buds according to her own tune. If ever the town of Hamlin was infested with jasmine buds, I knew she would be the piper ready to make them move to her own rhythm and beat. Such was her skill. But I always wondered why we don't pay attention to the details, why we never care about the deafness of the jasmine flower seller's fingers or the quick movements of her eyes. Strangely, on more than one occasion, I'm sure we have all bought jasmine flowers to keep them in our hair, give them away to our nosy relatives, or hang them in the front mirror of our car to mask the pungent smell of petrol. But even then, have we ever noticed the skill, time, and effort that goes into stringing just one bud? The next time you see a little stall by the roadside, covered with neat bundles of jasmine flowers, coiled like snakes, appreciate them. Appreciate the skill that goes into the flower seller's work. If our hearts can be content with death fingers slipping through crisp money, why can't it be with the jasmine flower seller's skilled hands? So this is the first one in the book. Oh, that's lovely. Thanks so much for reading that out. That was yes, really absolutely. nice. Yeah. Oh, this also, you know, brings me to ask you, um, you have yeah. clearly written a lot for children and young adults. Right? Yes. Is there a specific reason why you chose this audience for, for the kind of writing you do? Okay. Uh, see, in general, as a writer, I think I have the ability to 
talk about a lot of complex issues in a very simple way. And this is a skill I realized a couple of years ago, especially when I was in college. And my teachers used to tell me, see, you have an ability where you can really do this. So think about it a little bit more. That time I did not. But as I was writing, I realized that this is a skill that doesn't come easily to everybody. It's sometimes the most effective books or stories. They don't have to be complicated. They can be very simple and still convey a very powerful message. Then I thought, why not use the simplicity to... Uh, convey a message to children and I really feel like children who are growing up now and who are our future generation we really need to be taught these things and they really need to be taught in the form of stories so that's why I've chosen children as my primary audience because I feel like the best work can be done with children and the most progress can also be made with children Oh, that's great. And you also mentioned that you are, uh, you're a teacher right now. So you're also teaching children the English language, right, in school. Yes. So what is that like? Do you feel like you draw much inspiration from your students when you're writing these books? Uh, that's actually a difficult question because <laughs> I have not given this much thought. As in, it has uh, passed my mind once in a while, but I really think I need to give this a little bit more thought to, you know, really come up with an answer. But I think uh, what you're asking me is something I will only know after, say, a period in my teaching career. So maybe 10 years down the line, I still feel like, so this is my third year of teaching. So I still feel like I'm too fresh and new to really think about the kind of effect that students have had on me in terms of my creative side or in terms of me writing fiction books and all that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm also, you know, coming back to the myth of the wild god, yeah. uh, which is, of course, a really simply, nicely written story. And here again, it feels like you have uh, some of your lived experience creeping in because you talk about the Sholas and you talk about the experience through the eyes of this uh, young girl who is mm. the daughter of the chief um, honey collector in the yes. area. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, you've dipped a little bit into folklore, right? Because yeah. you've spoken about this myth. So um, I was wondering, can you maybe share with us just basically yeah. what is this myth of the wild girl and share that with our listeners? And then we can kind of talk a little bit more about the story. Okay. So as I was growing up, we knew a lot of people from the local community, people who have been in Pudi uh, and who have especially worked in Kodikanal International School to get a better livelihood. So I'm talking about the maintenance staff and all those stuff. So we were on pretty good terms with them. And the Kodi community in that way was very close, as in everybody knew everybody and everybody spoke to everybody. So in, in multiple interactions that I've had with them, they would often tell my parents, they would often tell me, See, you are not supposed to go close to wild boars because if a wild boar breathes on you, okay, it, it kind of will burn your skin away. And at that point of time, especially when I was a child, I, I believed this. I believed it as I was growing up. And another common myth was that if a wild boar you know, accidentally licks you, again, your flesh and all that would, and your skin would entire, entirely burn away. So this was another myth as well that I grew up with. And uh, see, as my, I, I, I'm not sure if my parents believed in this or not. I don't think I ever asked them that question. But when I was growing up, it was extremely fascinating for me to listen to these stories. And at that point of time, I didn't really ask why could this be a myth or not? Why do these myths exist? This did not cross my mind as a child. As a child, it just made me even more fascinated 
about the wild boars. But as an adult, I slowly started wondering why would these kind of stories really be in place? Is it to chase away tourists? Is, is it to keep away tourists from wild boars? Would it be an, uh, an angle of protection? See, there is no definite answer as to why, of course, these stories have been passing around, passing around and all that. But in my book, I've used it to my advantage to convey a positive message. So I, mean, I think I'll be, you know, delving a little bit more into these myths in maybe my future books and really racking my brain and figuring out what else people have told me when I was growing up and coming up with more stories which really do wonders for Kodekanal as an environment. Fantastic. It's so lovely to know that you're simultaneously paying homage to oral tradition and the kind of folklores that are told and passed on from generation to gen generation. And while you're also retaining that, you're also trying to unpack it a little bit and say, okay, here's what actually happens and here's how we can conserve a species without really losing the magic of that folklore and the mythology that goes around with, uh, along with it. I think that's something I really loved from this book, especially. Sounds amazing. <laughs> so also, what about your most recent book, The Guardians of the Forest? So what, what happens in that one? Since I've only uh, been yeah. able to like kind of look at the blurb so far and it's still in the in the process of being sent out into the universe. <laughs> yeah. So The Guardians of the Forest, uh, fortunately now the book releases are done and so the book launches are done and the book is now available on Amazon and it is uh, available on Kindle and so the release is officially done. Right. So The Guardians of the Forest, I think anybody who loves the place of the wild war would love The Guardians of the Forest. And it's something I actually consider to be my uh, magnum opus in a lot of ways because I have invested a lot into the book and it, it, I have a very big emotional connection with the book as well uh, because it describes the settings that I grew up in. So the myth of the wild core, uh, I mean, there is a, a little bit of, uh, a little bit more fiction, I would say. But the Guardians of the Forest, in terms of the setting, it's very realistic because those are the spaces that I walked through. Those are the spaces that I saw as I was growing up as a child. So that is one unique feature about that. And another thing is, um, the Guardians of the Forest is a lot more thrilling and adventurous. Of course, the myth of the wild war, I intended it to be a thrilling adventure novella. But if you want a little bit more adventure and a little bit more thrill, I think the Guardians of the Forest is definitely for you. And interwoven with this, is the issue of uh, pollution in Kodi and how tourists are, of course, I mean, tourists come to Kodi again to enjoy, to have fun, to have good times. But then how can they be more responsible? And what are they doing to the environment? And how are they leaving the environment when they leave? So that is a, one of the major questions that I address. And I also address how students are doing a wonderful job in terms of actually protecting the environment. So that is also one of the major themes of the book. Oh, very, very interesting. And congratulations on the launch. That's amazing news. Yes. Um, so I was also curious, uh, Priya, you know, you mentioned there are so many of these conservation issues and the root inspiration for why you write about them comes from your own childhood and seeing a lot of these changes happening. But some of these issues are also, of course, quite complex. And I would imagine that even if you are writing it as eco-fiction, considering you need to make it accessible and you're writing it for children you also probably um, 
have a process of research or collaboration to kind of figure out and understand the issues uh, while you're writing, right? So what is that process like for you? And what do you usually do in terms of trying to understand the ecosystem and the conservation issues of these books that you're writing? Okay. Interestingly, whenever I started off writing like any of these books, whether it's the postmodern other stories, the myth of the wild god, guardians of the forest, I did not start off with research. I started off with my observations. And uh, interestingly enough, all my observations proved to later on be correct when I actually did my research and figured it out. So, for example, something which is the wild boar migration. Of course, this was my observation and the observation of many of the local residents who were living in Kodi. But was it really something that was well researched on? No, it was not. And later on, when I actually tried finding more information about this and all that, even then I felt like there was a serious lack of research when it comes to this. The couple of papers that I read and uh, the, I mean, whatever I went through, they they told me that okay, whatever I'm writing about is not totally you know fantastical. It it is it is an issue that is happening. But again, I really feel like uh, young researchers could especially, you know, take this up. Those who are working in the mountains and those who are interested in the ecology of hills and all that can really take this up as something serious and do a lot more research on this. Because I feel like these are areas where there, there needs to be a lot more work done. And I'm looking at it in terms of the fiction part of it and writing for children and all that. But I would also really love as a writer if more goes into this. So, yeah. And uh, again, once more, this adding a little bit more about the guardians of the forest um there as well like uh, again in my grade in 11 and 12 i really feel like when i was in grade 11 and 12 2012 2013 was the time when a lot of these changes were very visible to me as a student and again tourists coming and littering and trashing the space and all of this was really visible to me then and i think i wrote about uh, not this but noise pollution uh in the hindu again so all these things later on have been written about, especially these days, I think there is more work in terms of articles coming up. It doesn't even have to be research papers and pollution and littering and Cody is also something that has been uh, talk, talked about more frequently these days. But again, even whether it's pollution or wild world or my, migration or the destruction of forests in Cody, I would really like more scientific research to go into all these areas. Right. No, I think that's that's quite interesting. And it's lovely that taking the storytelling approach has helped you inadvertently learn more about the place and also recognize the places where more work needs to be done. And mm. I mean, I really hope your stories inspire people from these places to continue yeah. paying attention and maybe uh, be part of the solution uh, over time. Because I mean, then you've Absolutely. succeeded. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, while you were talking, I was also just wondering, you know, you're also you're a storyteller, you wrote popular books, you write novellas. And at the same time, you're also a school teacher. And yeah. I wanted to know, do you see any differences in how children respond to, say, school syllabus and what's being taught there versus through media like storytelling? You know, like, say, if you were to take the same conservation issue and put it in a textbook, and to teach it as EBS to school students or even through chapters and languages versus, you know, them actually reading it in a book. What has your experience been in terms of how children engage with this kind of topical content? Mm -hmm. What's the best mode to give it to them? 
Okay, so the first thing is, uh, I've always worked in schools where uh, the teachers get a certain amount of freedom to do what they want. And especially as an IB teacher, I have complete freedom to design my own curriculum and all that. But having said that, uh, irrespective of how creative you can be in terms of, of the design curriculum or the content that you plan for the kids, there are still restrictions. It, like Because as a teacher, I think everybody's always always feels the pressure to cover a certain unit or cover a certain syllabus that they're forced to cover within a certain period of time. So that is not the constraint I have ever felt when I go for storytelling sessions. And I feel like it's more open-ended. So for example, if a storytelling session or a discussion about my book lasts for one hour, it, it is very open-ended because I always leave students with a feeling that the rest is up to them to discover and whatever initial discussions I've had are just the beginning. But I've also noticed that children also feel a lot more relaxed, a lot more open, and they feel completely at home when these sessions are going on because they're not tested in terms of knowledge, content, or anything else. They, they are basically tested in terms of what they can relate best to. So, for example, I've done a lot of sessions with the Myth of the Wild God. And even, the kid, even if the kids cannot relate to something like Cody or a wild god, I ask them a very simple question as to what is, a, say, a plant or an animal in their own neighborhood, which they feel like is slowly disappearing or you know slowly becoming invisible or what are the threats to that? So something as simple as that, I think all kids can relate to. And that's the beauty of storytelling where we provide a platform for every child to really think and uh, for every child to have something to you know, think outside the box as well. So I think storytelling is in that way amazing and book discussions such as these are really, really important for students to go and think outside the school curriculum, no matter how good the school uh, curriculum really is. And another thing I want to add here is that so far I've always had this inhibition of speaking in my own school about the work that I do. But, uh, you know, recently I've come over this inhibition and the grade six uh, class in the Aga Khan Academy now has the myth of the wild war as one of their textbooks as well. So how some of the kids that I'm teaching know that I'm an author and they are reading my book and I've done sessions with them. And I again, here also I've realized that irrespective of me being their teacher and all that, they are more in their comfort zone with me when I am, I have a different role, not as their teacher, but as a guest who talks about her work and my life and my journey as an author. So of course, that is a very uh, interesting observation, definitely. Oh, very, very cool. And it's nice to know that these worlds of yours are slowly colliding yeah. and you're getting to do a little bit of both together. That, that's yeah. quite neat. And it also must be, I think, quite lovely for your students to see an English language teacher actually being able to do her own writing, create books. And I'm sure that's quite inspiring because now when I think back as a, a young kid who also enjoyed writing growing up, I think if I had school teachers who were publishing books and sharing them with me in such an accessible way, I think I would have definitely felt really inspired to to write maybe even earlier on. So it's lovely yeah. that you're bringing this into your own school. Thank you so much. And that's really wonderful to hear. To be honest, I don't know how my students feel, but uh, definitely, I mean, if there is a spark of inspiration somewhere, especially for them to later on come up with books like this or stories like this, I think that would be the best thing in the world for me. 
Oh, definitely. And also speaking of that, you know, you were saying how so much of your writing comes from your own observations. And even though, say, you don't necessarily call yourself a wildlifer or something like that, uh, you know, you clearly are putting so much more content out into the world than those who are working with wildlife every single day. You know, I'm, I see myself surrounded by so many people who are wildlife practitioners or researchers, and we tend to be in our silos, talk about issues in our own little circles, maybe publish a popular article or two here and there, but there's really not a lot of writing that gets put out into the popular space and very little for students or young children and you know, there's a very tiny pool of people who we can maybe count on our two hands who are writing for children uh, within the themes of environmentalism. So what do you think we need to be doing to just get more people to become storytellers, you know, even especially those who are actively working on these conservation issues or who have these kind of observations through their life? You know, what would your advice be or what would some best practices be to just get started and get over that you know that slump or hump of hesitation to just do it and put stories out into the world okay so I think this has happened even for me where uh, I I get very caught up in my day-to-day life and and teaching can be extremely exhausting and can be extremely time consuming as well. So I completely understand when it comes to our profession, sometimes even if our profession directly or indirectly deals with such fields, we get so involved in that that we forget what we actually, what what could actually create a better impact. And what I would say is it's always important to uh, focus on the smaller things that, that we feel like only we can notice and that only we can make a difference by noticing and writing about or talking about. So I think, uh, especially in, you know, today's world where we're so caught up in so many different things, I think it's always time to take a little break every day and think about what is happening in my immediate locality, which I could really talk about or write about or which I could make a difference to. I think it all it always starts from there. So even if it's wildlife, it could be, you know, whatever animals are going through in your neighborhood, whatever birds are going through in your neighborhood. So I think it's important to focus on local problems, small problems and small issues, which may get absolutely no recognition on any platform. So I think you start there and then I think slowly, once your interest develops, you really know that when you are talking about such things to other people, you look at how odd they are by whatever you're saying. You look at how it makes so much of a difference because they know absolutely nothing about what you are talking about. But they do know what, say, uh, Greta Thunberg is doing or they know what bigger activists are doing and their role and how they are making a difference to the planet. So this is where I think we can all be very inspirational. Yeah, no, I fully agree. I think we definitely need to push ourselves outside our comfort zones a little more and I think what you said also does make sense where your own everyday job can be so all-consuming that it's hard to kind of extend that into the popular realm always because it's more of the same just in different ways mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah I really genuinely hope that more storytellers emerge from the amazing work that's being done across the country and clearly there are a lot of stories to tell and hopefully many more to come absolutely yeah 
I also noticed uh, that your books have these really lovely, simple line drawings and sketches. Okay. And I also noticed that there's no clear copyright or, you know, uh, anything over there. So I'm guessing those are yours as well. Are, are all of those your uh, sketches? No, 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 no. So the postman uh-huh. and other stories, they are my illustrations. Okay. Uh, the myth of the wild boar and the guardians of the forest have been done by Ashlyn Sarah Paul who is a student of Shantani Ketan and she's a good friend also. And so to be honest, in, in the myth of the Vangor, I'm not sure why her uh, name as an illustrator is not included. I, I believe that that was a decision made by her and the publisher. But in the Guardians of the Forest, her, she is given credit as an illustrator. I think once again, that, that was a decision between her and the publisher. And sometimes uh, some illustrators also, when they are at the beginning of their career, they don't really want their name to be there on the book. So this is also something I've noticed, not with Ashley, but with some other illustrators. But however, as uh, years go by, they become more confident in their work and they're actually more confident in also displaying their name on the book. So you will see Ashlyn's name in the Guardians of the Forest. And she's an amazing illustrator and so far I have never had to tell her hey you have to draw something else in a different way because she has spent so much time in reading the books and then uh, making the illustrations so they are in perfect sync if you notice illustrations and the text oh wow yeah no exactly I think one of the reasons why I thought maybe it was your own artwork was because of that it seemed like the artwork appeared in the right places and they kind of seemed to just imitate what I was also envisioning while reading your words. So yeah. it was uh, it was really lovely to see how nicely that's gone hand in hand. And yeah, yeah, no, they're it's really a lovely collection of of books. Since you also brought up publishing right now, with my very limited experience with writing and producing children's books and engaging with the publishing printing aspect of things, which of course I've done in a very rudimentary sense in comparison, there are a lot of challenges, right? And it's not easy at all. I was wondering, can you walk us through what that process is like a little bit? Because what has distribution of these books been like and how is that going? Uh, First of all, finding a publisher was very difficult for me because uh, again I mean this is no secret that the bigger publishing houses only publish the work of people who are already very well established and famous neither of which you know I can say I am right now but uh, again so after doing quite a lot of uh, research and all that like I just became very frustrated but then I came across Paper Lantern Publishers it was formerly known as Wolf Press it is a traditional publishing house and the person who owns the publishing house is also my friend. So it was it was more uh, easier for me to at least have an opportunity to say, okay, look at my manuscript and see if it's worthy enough of being uh, worthy enough to publish it. Because very often we see that in bigger publishing houses, they don't even bother to even check your manuscript. They they require certain credentials before they do that. So uh, for me, it was it was a really amazing journey with Paper Lantern Publishers. They've published both. Uh, the myth of the wild war and now the guardians of the forest and they are doing an incredible job and i think now they are uh, more established as a publisher as well and now they've come to a point where they're accepting you know quite only quite a few titles which they feel are uh, very significant in terms of conveying a message so i think their journey has also been uh, really really incredible oh that's that's quite interesting to know and uh, to know that you're kind of growing alongside one another yeah yeah 
it also uh, makes me wonder you know there is of course so much dialogue around uh just how difficult it is to have a sustainable financially sustainable career as a writer as a publisher and like you're saying your primary job is teaching and you do this on the side as well but there are a lot of people out there who probably are very interested in being full time storytellers and may not kind of have the opportunities or exposure or ability to do so so what has your experience been like do you think this is something that people can aspire to do full time or is it something that you know is safest to do only on the side uh, in in addition to a primary career just like a book publishing i would say that storytelling happens again when you have the best connections you can do it full time when you have the best connections and the best opportunities and platforms where you can share your stories but uh, say when i started out when and this was the time when i first published the first woman and other stories and i had absolutely no that no idea who storytellers were or what or what they did and i didn't even know anybody who could probably put me in touch with people and all that but the kind of platform that i did have was the connections that i had as a teacher and my own students were like the people who i could test this out with mm-hmm. so of course i didn't tell them these were my stories and all at that point of time but it, that is when i realized that teaching could actually be a, a place where i mean i do it for the love and passion but it could also be a place where i connect with other teachers where i connect with other schools and i can reach out to people using my network as a teacher so that's how storytelling became much easier for me but the reason why i continue to be a full time teacher of course is one uh, to be very frank about this is the finances because especially as a traditionally published author and who writes on eco fiction it is not always easy to get a really wide audience and royalties and all that so the financial part is one thing but another thing is also because as a full time storyteller it sometimes you know maybe a once in a while opportunity especially because i still don't feel like i have enough of those connections but whatever connections i am building are through the opportunities that i get as a teacher so i feel like both are kind of interconnected like which is something i think you also mentioned earlier how you know things are kind of coming well together for me right now and i think that's why i would like to hold on to both maybe you know in the distant future when i really become well established and i can let go of teaching i think i i would do that at that point of time once i feel like everything is uh, you know it has come together yeah no that does definitely make sense and i feel perhaps that's also what holds some people back in terms of not quite knowing where to begin or how to launch yourself into this space because sometimes an issue which i see cropping up not just in terms of storytelling but also in terms of general outreach for conservation issues is that we often have very limited circles and not too many connections and contacts into the general public and the outside world to get that message really across so i think the fact that you are doing this as someone through her contacts as a teacher and through the education space is really wonderful because it means you're probably reaching an audience that a lot of other people who are full time wildlife practitioners may be missing because our circles are definitely geared towards a very different audience which probably already agrees with what we have to say oh. <laughs> yeah um now that's that's quite uh, quite interesting and speaking of the future priya do you look at yourself maybe writing for more audiences beyond children and what what do you, where do you think your writing journey is headed 
Okay, so I I really don't see myself as somebody who writes for adults or who writes on any other themes because, like I said, uh, for me to uh, separate my childhood from me or what I experienced on the mountains from me is is it's it's not even it's it's not about it being difficult. It's impossible. So <laughs> I, I'm going to continue writing about such themes as long as uh, I feel like I've exhausted every possibility, which I don't think will be happening anytime soon. So definitely, I will continue writing for children because, again, I feel like I can make the best impact on them. Mm-hmm. No, that's great, and I think, like you were saying, they are uh, probably the people who need to hear these stories the most at this point in time. Um. So what what are you looking at maybe as your next project? I mean, you're such a prolific writer, and in you're so young, and in a very short period of time, you've already had four books out, and I'm sure a lot of other stories under your wing. So what kind of observations or conservation issues are you looking at to keep writing about in your upcoming work? Okay, <laughs> so the upcoming work. This is uh, it. I mean, it's been. It's hell. It has started in a very basic way, so I don't know if I can, you know, say as much, even if I wanted to say as much. But um, so the title of the book is "The Girl Who Painted the Skies," and um, uh, it, it's I think it's going to be a little bit of magic realism, and uh, I think the what I'm going to be focusing on is the flying squirrel, as we call it in Kodi, and uh, it's it's a big giant red squirrel. It has reddish fur. So I think uh, that would be my focus. But what am I going to do with it? Even I'm not very sure. And how am I going to connect it to the girl who painted the skies is something I'm still thinking about. But in a very basic sense, this is what I'm working on. And I'm very excited for it because uh, it, it is a little less realistic than my other two books. So I'm really excited to see how all of this is again going to come together. Oh, that sounds super fascinating. That's great. I can't wait to know more about it as it unfolds. Yeah. And I hope you'll share the work with us and our listeners over time as and when it comes out because it sounds really exciting. Amazing. Well, all the best, Priya. This was so great. It was wonderful to be introduced to you and your writing. And I mean, I'm such a sucker for children's literature anyway. I think it's it's yeah. one of those pleasures that I'm never going to lose because I'll I always enjoy reading children's stories far more than all the serious books I'm supposed to be reading now as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for bringing these stories into my life and now our listeners. Yeah. It's, yes. it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for having me over. And I'm sure that my work resonates with what you've been doing all along as well, based on you know, all my understanding of you and uh, what you've been posting as well on Instagram and all that like I so I'm really happy that I've been able to be featured by you where uh, you know you've, you've already been doing so much work in this field already and then as somebody who's kind of joining your already established work is really amazing for me we, we need more of these kind of collaborations and yes I hope uh, I hope people who are wildlife practitioners or conservation practitioners start drawing inspiration from people like you who are doing these kind of really important bits of storytelling and the fact that you're approaching it through fiction and now like you're saying magic realism oh that sounds so cool you know I think just those hooks are so important so yeah this was this was great thanks so much thank you so much for having me Shikan I look forward to being here again with you having conversations about my book and about wildlife 
Tune in again next week for episode number 50 of The Thing About Wildlife featuring Rishikesh Chavan who has spent a lifetime spearheading conservation campaigns across the country. If you've been enjoying this podcast, do subscribe, leave us a review and recommend us to your friends. You can also write in with your ideas and feedback or simply to say hi via social media or email us at thethingaboutwildlife@gmail.com. Thanks for listening.